Welcome to the AD Aesthete, hosted by me, Mitch Owens, Decorative Arts Editor of Architectural Digest. Today's guest is London businessman Edo Mapelimotsi. Tabloid groupies will know him as the newlywed husband of Queen Elizabeth's granddaughter, Princess Beatrice of York, whom he married in July. Royal factor aside, Mapelimotsi is the founder and CEO of Banda, an award-winning property development, interior architecture, and decoration firm that he founded in 2007 at the age of 23, fresh out of the University of Edinburgh. His idea was to identify unconventional buildings in neighborhoods slightly off the beaten path, such as an 1880s beer bottling factory and a Victorian bakery, and inventively transform them into impeccable, luxuriously detailed contemporary residences for modern families that wanted top-notch urban homes at a lower price point. In this episode, Mapelimazzi and I talk about everything from his longtime passion for historic architecture to how the COVID-19 pandemic has already changed what people want a home to be. I hope you enjoy the show. Edo, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Really interested in understanding what was going on in the London housing market at the time that you founded Banda and what within that market led you to think that was an opportunity. Hi, Mitch, and thank you for that. So I was uh, straight out of university when I, I founded Banda, aged just 22 years. I had, throughout my university years, um, been buying houses in London, splitting them into flats, um, doing small-scale residential development projects. Um, and had then, um, in my sort of latter years of university, and when I came out, started working in uh, construction, for some bigger construction companies. And I, I left university, and a number of my contacts had asked me to try and help them find homes or sites for them in central London and asked me to, to project manage for them. And one thing led to another, one project led on to a bigger project and, and so on. Um, at the same time as the, the world was crumbling around us in 2008 in the global recession. Um, so it wasn't um, in some ways the wisest time to be starting a new business. But in the other hand, uh, there was our competition all had problems, all had legacy problems, all had very big overheads. And, and we didn't have that. So by not having that, that led to an opportunity for us to find the opportunities that came out of the recession and um, find mm. project development opportunities and new homes for clients um, in a very turbulent couple of years for the, for the global economy. So what opening did you see? I know that one of your strategies was to look outside of established um, postal codes. Uh, I'm correct. A lot of our clients um, came to us looking for unconventional properties and they were looking for something different, um, not cookie cutter. Um, and so we, we started mm. exploring uh, commercial buildings that potentially had uh, higher ceiling heights, better volume, more light, 
and seeing how we could reposition those buildings for our private clients. And um, we, we ended up buying buildings like an old wharf, a, um, a Victorian bakery, a, a bottling factory, uh, an art deco um, garage or sort of a working garage that um, we were able to, is across three floors, um, we were able to put a, a gallery into the ground floor uh, and then the first and second floors were, were repositioned into 5,000 square foot, two bedroom apartments. But your idea was always to preserve what the shell was. It was always to preserve as much of the original building that was there um, and as much of the heritage that we could. And even in certain cases where uh, the heritage features had been stripped out, we would do a lot of research into what the building would have been like and, and try and restore that and trying to get that sensitive mixture of old and new. Um, and obviously these buildings have to be brought up to a modern day of living and they have to be mm -hmm. um, manipulated to operate in a different way. But we want to try and keep as much of the originality um, of the building, heritage of the building, because that's what gives it the charm and that's what makes it authentic. Have you always had such a preservationist mindset? I mean, have, have old buildings always been something you're interested in seeing survive? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I love the heritage and the history of old buildings. I love the fact that every single one is different. I've always loved the authenticity of that. And I, uh, there's a sort of Japanese saying of, of wabu-sabi, which is the sort of idea of um, uh, finding beauty within the imperfections, celebrating the cracks, the dents, the marks, the weather leaves behind, and that perfectionist of imperfection. And I find that with old buildings, um, there's so much charm and individuality to, to all of them. And I, I much prefer working um, with an old building than, than trying to create a, a building from scratch. I, I also find cities, um, a lot of the new build architecture doesn't stand the test of time. It might look good to begin with, but in 10 years time or 20 years time, it often doesn't look so good. I do find with heritage buildings, so maybe these were art, some of these buildings were Art Deco, George and Victoria. Mm -hmm. um, they, they stand the test of time. And as long as you can reposition them, so they work and they function for how modern day families want a building to function, then, you know, they make wonderful homes. They have so much more soul than a, than a new build. I mean, I think that's the other interesting aspect of what Banda does is marrying the old with the new in a way that seems completely logical and also completely sensitive. Absolutely. Um, and we, we found when, when we were starting this business, looking at the new build properties that were being created in London, uh, was that the new build homes were being created for selling off plan and selling to investors um, and were very cookie cutter. The ceiling heights were you know, on average 2.6, uh, maybe 2.7 in, in the sort of luxury developments. But essentially mm. everybody was creating uh, white boxes for investors to buy off plan. And what we wanted to do was create uh, developments and homes for people to live in. And we started using this expression design for living. Um, and when we, we bought the, the bakery building in um, 2011, we took advice from a number of different people within inside the industry. And everybody said, you need to put a supermarket on the ground floor and create 30 apartments on the upper floors. 
And what we did was to create a car park on the ground floor and five, mm. five apartments on the upper floors. And we created two bedroom apartments or three bedroom apartments that were three and a half, 4,000 square feet. And, and everybody in the market said, nobody's going to buy this. Nobody wants apartments of that size with that few bedrooms in this location. And what they weren't accounting for was that um, a lot of people were selling their homes maybe you know during the recession as well they hadn't been able to sell their homes for a number of years um, and their kids had grown up and they weren't using the top two floors of their family home they didn't want the maintenance of maintaining the roof every year or, the, or maintaining the garden so what they wanted was a large lateral space with a proper master living space and, and, and bedroom space and a couple of spare bedrooms that if they have a guest or a kid that comes home that they can use and that wasn't being created for um, in any of the new build that was coming out in the market. We were creating three bedroom apartments that were starting at two and a half or 3,000 square feet. So we were really trying to cater to people that wanted to live in the apartments and owner-occupier markets rather than the investor markets. And how did your clients feel, I mean, in the very beginning about um, stepping out of the standard comfort zone postal codes? I think they probably thought it was quite cool. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you took someone over the river to a postcode that someone wasn't used to, and suddenly they walk into a space that has a four meter ceiling or a five meter ceiling, or is a very large apartment that has a roof terrace that is a thousand square meters. It was something, it was something new. It's something uh, different from what all of their friends have got. And so they probably felt very avant-garde in the way that they had discovered something that other people hadn't seen. Mm. So, so it was an easy sell in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it was an easy sell in a lot of ways, but we had to create it before people understood what we were doing. So we wouldn't have been able to, to take this idea and sell it off plan to people. We actually had to finish all of our own product, finish all of the apartments, and then allow people to come down and say, well, absolutely, I understand this. This makes sense why you've built a 5,000 square foot two-bedroom apartment. And, and they were also getting, as you said, once it was all finished, they were seeing that it was as luxurious in terms of materials and finishes as they would have been able to get in a more conventional postal code. Absolutely, if, if not a, a better quality and better materials um, than a conventional postcode. Uh, because we were designing homes for people to live, um, and we go back mm -hmm. to this expression of design for living, which is the sort of mantra of our design studio, um, and thinking about um, the quality of something that's going to last, they were getting better, better quality homes using better materials than they would in the traditional postcodes for half the price. Mm. Uh, and because we, were, we weren't selling off plan to anybody, we were finishing all our developments, there was no hiding from quality. So we realized very quickly there were no shortcuts in this process. And everything you do, you need to do once and you need to do well so that it stands the test of time and lasts. But if you're selling off plan, all you care about is you know, making it look good in, in the renders, the computer-generated images, so that um, you can sell the investment or the apartment to somebody. And actually, the quality of the finished product is then not so important. But because we don't let anybody in uh, until we've completely finished, then that quality really comes through and, and, it, and is, is the only important thing that actually sells the apartment. 
and the way that that apartment functions and the space, the hierarchy of spaces, how light flows through the apartments, all of those little things that owner occupiers will care about um, become the critical factors. You seem so certain at such a young age to start this company and have this vision. Were there any moments of whether it was the acquisition of a particular property or a particular new adventurous and postal code where you sort of stepped back and had any trepidation about the possible success? Every, every day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's a new challenge every day. We learn every mm -hmm. day. We're only ever as good as the last project we've done. So every project has to get better. We have to take the lessons from the last development, the last private client project we've done, mm. and we have to learn from them and we have to continue to get better. We, we typically don't look at what our competition is doing um, and we don't try and, and copy anyone. We stay authentic to what our private clients are telling us that they want and what, is, what, what they want in their homes with that design for living mindset. Mm. But yeah, every day there are challenges um, in a construction project um, like some of ours. We might have 200, 300 people a day coming to our developments, construction workers. Mm. Um, and we sit through meetings on a daily basis that are, are 10 hours long, eight hours long, trying to brainstorm with our design teams and professionals how we can um, execute these projects um, to achieve the quality of what we want to achieve. And when we look at our developments, um, and we're just completing one now that is uh, 15 apartments, every apartment is, of those 15 is different. So we have to treat every single one as an individual design, as its own project. Mm -hmm. what, what, what sort of building is that in? That is a, um, uh, it's seven listed buildings, next continuous buildings, that was originally built as seven large townhouses. Okay. They're grade two star listed. Um, it had been then converted into a hotel and we were able to um, read lateral apartments um, and each apartment goes across four of the buildings and overlooks a, a garden square on the south side. So we've been able to take the old building and then reposition it for the way that people want to live now, which is, a, which is across one floor and typically in London, uh, where this building is people like south facing because it gets the mm. maximum daylight coming into, into their apartments and then we took the little bits of heritage that we could find there um, whether mm. it was a couple of meters of pl plaster molding or, or a, a picture of maybe what the rose detail might have looked like or the picture of what the original floor might have looked like and then we got it all remade and put back into the building but arrayed within a lateral envelope which is an incredibly interesting combination of historical features and then horizontal living as opposed to the traditional vertical London townhouse. Absolutely. So it, it's a sort of a very modern take on, on a, a listed building. Uh, and unfortunately for us, because the buildings were in such a state of disrepair, the, the heritage and the councils were very keen to see this building brought back into, into life. And therefore they were prepared to allow us to go with this vision for large lateral apartments, rather than trying to reestate the original seven townhouses. Mm. And you also mentioned that there's a common garden. Yeah, so this, this overlooks a private uh, communal garden 
uh, at the front of the, the 15 apartments. That opens the discussion now of you're back in London after having been away since March. I'm still out of New York City, um, thanks to the pandemic as well. And what are clients discussing with you now about what they want because the design for living concept is now the design for living 24 seven concept of, of very much spending even more time in your home. Absolutely. Um, we've all been confined to our homes for, for a long time. Um, and it has forced us to, to think about the way that we're living and try and determine what we, we need from our homes and how we use our homes on a daily basis. And there's a number of um, significant sort of trends that we've seen um, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe sort of changes that we're going to see because of this. The first, I guess, is this sort of having the flexible spaces throughout the home. A lot of our clients, especially, you know, maybe clients who have got smaller homes, need to use spaces for a greater number of activities. So we've seen clients who are using their... Um, dining room for entertaining but also for their home office um, or we've seen people who are using their entertaining space also for, for working out and using it as their home gym and doing virtual classes so having some adaptability in your layouts and uh, we've seen is, is, is definitely an emerging trend we've also seen a universal need for um, private outdoor space um, and certainly I think um, most of our appreciation for the outdoors and for nature has been greatly increased during the COVID time. Existing clients of ours have started urban farming. Um, clients of ours who live in the countryside have started vegetable gardens or have built bigger vegetable gardens on this year in order to be more self-sufficient. Um, so that's definitely a, a trend that I think we'll see continuing um, uh, over the course of time. Um, there's been a lot um, spoken about home offices and the need for, especially for, for our clients who have got families, the need to have a, a quiet space in order to do Zoom calls and, and other conference calls. And that space um, to be away from the living space or away from um, wherever people's children might be making lots of noise. Um, other trends we've seen, clients have um, spent far more time in the kitchen cooking for themselves, so smart kitchen designs, and we've seen the um, necessity for, for people to have bigger larders um, as people want to do fewer trips to supermarkets. And then I guess the, the, the one that um, we've always been very thorough on because we live in, a, in an urban environment in London is sort of air purification systems and air filtering systems and um, in London we've, we've always been very strong on that but I think we'll start to see that everywhere now. It's, it's a very interesting time I think to be in design and construction and development largely because of this recalibration of what a home is supposed to be. The idea that you know, uh, our, our standard idea for living in a home is you're there for a couple of hours in the morning, you're gone for the rest of the day, you come home in the evening, you're there for a few hours before bed. So you're, you're really uh, in this fragmented fractional living, whereas as, as now 
as you're talking about the various trends, we're really having to recalibrate the fact that the home has suddenly become truly the center of, of, of life in terms of, of just more hours spent in it. 100% and the, the flow of spaces in homes and the hierarchy of spaces in homes, I don't think has ever been more important. As you rightly said, but before we would have got up, made our breakfast and gone off to work. Now we're not only staying in the homes all day, but we're living with our families all day. Um, so we've seen how those flow of spaces and uh, have become even more important. And people's desire for high ceilings, natural light, um, the ability to you know, take a phone call and very quickly go somewhere a bit more private or outdoors to take that phone call or to go outdoors and, and have a cup of coffee and get some fresh air. These sorts of necessities are, are far more important now than they, they ever have been. I wonder if that means that there's going to be a course correction from that long-time love um, of an open loft-like space into more conventional, as you said, hierarchical spaces where you have the proper, proper separate rooms for proper separate functions, as opposed to the sort of open plan living. There's pluses and minuses of both, because as you live in your house all day, having that hierarchical type of living means you're going up and down staircases all day. I, I still think you can have an open plan style of living where mm -hmm. you can close off spaces, get private spaces, have uh, outdoor space. And, and Leinster um, Square, which is one of our recent developments, the one we, we spoke about, is a very good example of that. Whilst your apartments go across four buildings, and you can, from your kitchen, which is in one building, look through your dining room, look through your, your sitting room. So you can look all the way across three buildings and get that feel of lateral living. You can also close off doors between all the spaces if you want to have privacy in the kitchen or in the dining space or in the living. So having that adaptability of spaces um, is very important. That, that can be done through architecture or, or through interior design. So clients who have got a very large loft have still been able to very cleverly through interior design create um, feature walls, um, private areas, study areas, while still being part of a larger room. So what's on the project horizon now? You just mentioned Leicester Square. Are there, uh, what's coming down through the Bonda pipeline? Uh, we've just started a uh, 20,000 square foot grade one listed house in London. Um, which is going on a private garden square again, which is going to be very exciting. Um, we are doing a apartment in Paris in the seventh district um, with views of the Eiffel Tower. We're doing a um, brownstone in uh, New York and a, a large lateral apartment near the park in New York. And looking to, we're talking to lots of other clients now. We're back in September about other projects uh, in London and, and further overseas. And any other unconventional buildings that you have your eyes on or that you find particularly challenging? Um, we, we are looking at a large listed building in central London to, to try and buy. It was actually bombed uh, quite, quite severely during the war and a lot of the listed elements and features were lost. 
um, and that creates opportunities uh, and uh, creates problems. And the opportunities are that we have more freedom to create the types of spaces that we would want to create for modern day living without being curtailed by the existing envelope of the building. But on the other hand, it lacks the original features that we would have to try and recreate in order to, to bring it back to life. What other neighborhoods within London do you think are overlooked that would you know, welcome, say, a, a, a Banda Eye coming in and seeing it? How far can you push this idea of the unconventional postal code? It, we don't necessarily just focus on um, areas that we think are good areas. We, we tend to look for the building rather than the area because you can go to a good area or an area that you think is right for the band or brand and only one in a hundred of the buildings will work for what we are trying to do. So it's definitely building specific, not area specific, but what we tend to look for is an area that uh, has a village feel, has a community, already has the, the shops, the gyms, the transport. Uh, and, and a sense of community already there rather than trying to create all of that ourselves. And typically our, our developments that we're doing are, are not big enough to create all of that ourselves. And even where you see these sort of larger scale developments that are offering amenities like gyms and, and swimming pools and members clubs, um, what we found is that those sorts of buyers um, that want to live in those buildings We'll want to work out in a different way or will already be a member of a, of a members club or, or want to do Peloton in their, in their apartment or go to a, a spin class rather than being told how they're going to do it and being charged a premium in order to have that in their building. I love your website, by the way. Thank you. It's, 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 it's incredible. I'm, I'm really fascinated by that idea of the lateral going across the building, sort of you know, turning the whole idea of London living literally on its side. The, the Europeans have been used to it probably more longer than uh, the English have been used to it. There's always been this English mentality of wanting to go upstairs to bed. <laughs> but um, I think um, also when you're, when you're paying on a pounds per foot, you right. want your space to be usable. And there's been an appreciation of having, you know, usable space and, and even the luxury of, of, of space. Um, if you can see it and, and, and um, if you can see all of it, it is, is definitely starting to be valued. And we've, we've started to see value for volume as well, which we've never really been able to try, try and put, put a finger on. Mm. And it's funny, isn't it? Because everyone sort of gets into these postcodes and pounds per foot or pounds per meter, but actually a price of something and a value of something is made up of so many different nuances. As I say, like light, volume, energy, green, green space, views, clean air, all these different things. And there's thousands of little things that go into it to then create a value for something and, and an emotional attachment which is what you need your buyers to eventually have. Well, that's what I, I liked very much in the beginning when you were talking about the cookie cutter white box versus, you know, that, that's uh, designed and conceived for someone to invest in, but never actually live in versus creating spaces that people actually will live in. 
Absolutely. Because there's, there's, that, there's that whole, you know, you see it in New York, you see it in London, you see it in, in all, any number of big cities of apartments that are simply empty. They've, they've just been sort of stockpiled as, as investment properties. And that, that's also their funding structures that have sort of led them to do that. They've been so focused on trying to sell off plan that they have designed to sell off plan. And then they've pushed it around the world to sell it to overseas investors. That nobody ends up living in these buildings. And, and even if they do end up living in them, they're renting them off the investors that then bought them. And then you don't get a sense of community with inside your building. Where, where we've done not private commissions for, for people, where we've done multi-unit developments, so five, five units upwards, maybe five to 30 units, every single apartment is lived in by the original buyer. And not a single one of them is sold on and not a single one of them is renting them out. And so that sense of community you get by having a building that is owner-occupied throughout is completely different. I like your, your use of the word community because you've mentioned it several times, trying to create that degree of activity and you know, um, connectedness between people and the properties. Has that always been something that's always interested you, that idea of, of people and conversations and community and um, you know, being together? I mean, has that always been something that you've known throughout your life or that, you just, that you've seen as, just as, as the most valuable way for us to all live? I think absolutely. I'm so curious about everybody. Everybody has a beautiful story and uh, you can learn so much by talking to people and understanding what that story is. And I think when we live in these sorts of cities and um, certainly it's changed a bit due to COVID, but certainly everybody lives such a fast pace of life that there's been a breakdown of community. Um, People pass their neighbours without stopping to say hello People don't look out for people in the, set, in the way that they used to. And, you know, maybe those areas of community that used to bring people together have also been broken down. Um, and people communicate in a different way. People now communicate online rather than going to the local church or going to the local pub. So that has really sort of started to change a lot of things for community in, in big cities. Um, and I sort of missed that and, and feel that you... you it, you should be able to live in an area where you want to support the people that live there as well and support the local shops and support the local restaurants and your neighbours to look out for you and vice versa. I mean, it's interesting. It's what almost what you're describing is an ideal village. It's a village within inside, um, within inside a city, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that attracts us to doing this development on the Garden Square is that the garden square is a private garden square. The people who have keys are the people that live around that garden square. Now, whether you use that garden square or you don't use that garden square, it forces a sense of community because it's you and 150 other families that all have access to that square. And now people are looking out for each other and there's an email that everybody communicates with each other. You've got a neighborhood watch. You've got people who say, well, I saw something happen the other day or, or even during the COVID experience. You know, does anybody need anything? Does anybody need shopping done for them? Does anybody, you know, if anybody's ill, please let us know and we'll try and help you. So you could see how the Garden Square was able to bring those sorts of, sorts of community back in. And, and, and in London, actually, funny enough, the residential areas of London during the lockdown 
had a much better sense of community than I've ever seen. Um, and then on the other hand, you, you look at the more sort of office-led areas of London, central London, and they were like ghost towns. Well, thank you again for, for joining me. Really, thank you very much. The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.